Welcome to the Next Conference Podcast. This week's episode features Indy Johar's keynote from Next Conference 2018. Good afternoon. Um, I'm delighted and honored to be here. And in a way, just before lunch, I want to be really boring. Because um, I think you guys will all be tired. And there's been extraordinary speakers in the room. But I suppose where I want to start is, um, is a little bit by challenging the conversation. I think it's been really interesting. And the speakers have been really phenomenal. But I suppose where I want to start is by saying maybe we need to start to think about things in a slightly different way. And maybe we need to talk about some realities that we're facing. So the two graphs in front of us are, one, Branko Milanovic's curve, it's called the elephant curve, which shows the distribution of wealth, of globalization over the last 30 years. And what you see is the middle classes in the developed economies have pretty much not seen the benefits of globalization anywhere. What you've seen is a very narrow section of the population capturing most of the wealth at the top end. At the same time, we've seen a massive concentration of wealth happening in the hands of the few. So whilst I enjoy the conversations that we're having, perhaps we just need to keep an eye on some of the structural changes that are going on. So 4% of the world's mammals are wild. Four. Not 14, not 40, four. That includes all your zebras, everything. There's 56 billion cattle. The reason why I say that is I think, in a way, we can sit here, and I live in this world too, and we can sit there and kind of think, hey, we're solving world's problems. And actually, when you look at the real underlying issues, and this year you'll have seen in 2017 and 18, pretty much every global city had a two-degree temperature anomaly everywhere, pretty much all over the world. And I wonder whether we're actually addressing some of the challenges. At the same time, for the boon of the, of the, kind of, uh, of the software and the, and the software age and the code age, this is a net wealth uh, where net wealth assets have grown. And what you see is land has captured, certainly in the UK, most of the wealth, actually, of every asset class. So all the other asset classes have pretty much stayed nominally the same. Land has grown in value five times. And you'll have seen this in the price of housing in many parts of, many parts of the world. So whilst we sit here and talk about kind of a whole economy and the transition, what we're seeing is some under underlying plays which are rather extraordinary. And in a way, we sit in a world of new challenges as well. And why I want to frame this out is that, in a way, the challenges are fundamentally different. This diagram that you see in front of you is a map of all the drivers of obesity. Right? And what you see here is that there's no single magic bullet. There's no single policy. There's no single intervention. And what you see is there's about 40 to 50 drivers, at least, of just driving obesity. I'm not even talking about any of the complex problems that we're all talking about here. 
And I wonder whether actually this kind of notion of when we start to see the world through interdependency challenges how we think about solutions. And why I want to bring this to the table is maybe, and this is a hypothesis I want to put on the table, we're coming to the end of a cycle of thinking. So the last 300 years, we've seen the world through objects and being able to isolate objects. It's putting them in vitro, the atom, making, making maths separate from science, making science separate from arts. We saw the world by actually isolating it. And while now perhaps what we're starting to see is a worldview where the interdependency of things is not only visible, but is actually catastrophic as our externalities are no longer ignorable. The externalities that our world produces, so the beef, the burgers we eat, right, that 56 billion cattle, is far and more excessive than any of the kind of nice electric vehicles that we talk about. You want to change, you want to address carbon, carbon issues and climate change? Become vegan. I'm not even joking. I'm really not even joking. And the reason why I build this up is when we start to see this world through this notion of interdependency, perhaps words like public and private become illusions. Words like sovereignty, as a British-speaking person, uh, become illusions. We start to think of the world from this idea of individualism and the discrete individual when that's a convenient illusion. If I was to pick any one of us, if you look at actually my DNA or your DNA, a very small part of my human body is actually full of human DNA. The rest of it is symbiotic with a multitude of organisms. My cognitive function is actually imprinted by my social networks. In epigenetics terms, Actually, the impacts of poverty and stress are passed through two generations, at least genetically. Now, in that world of interdependency, what does justice mean? What does equality mean? These words that we sort of... What does meritocracy mean? And I want to put forward that actually perhaps we're living in a fundamentally different age, where interdependency actually challenges whole theoretical philosophical conception that's been at the center of our world, and even the private limited company. The private limited company which isolates, which discrete, makes discrete value possible, is actually being challenged because actually there is no such thing as private wealth, I would argue. It's interdependent wealth. Let me give you an example. I don't know how many of you own houses, but let's say a few of you own houses. Over the last 10 years, your houses will have gone up in value. And I will say, why do you think your house has gone up in value? And you go, well, you know, it's a nice house. So, okay. The house physically is, if I was to move that house and put it in the middle of Nova Scotia or Russia, it's worth nothing. Physical house. The land underneath it, if it's agricultural land, that's bad. But let's assume it's not agricultural land. Let's assume it's really poor land. In which case, the land itself is worth nothing. So what's really worth where the value comes from? And if this was a real estate conversation, there'd be some smart aleck going, location, location, location. What do they mean by location, location, location? Well, what they really mean by location, location, location is the monopolistic access that that land provides to schools, transportation, labor markets, public goods, um, parks, it's the access that that land privileges. 
So when your house has gone up in value, what has gone up in value? The physical house? No, because actually it's a depreciating asset. The land? Marginal. What's actually gone up in value is common goods have become more valuable, and that is captured by private ideas of land. So, and if I was to isolate your individual house, it's worth nothing. It only is worth something when all of you decide to live together. The aggregative function of cities generates their value. Now, why that's important is historically, we've ignored this notion in the notion of creating the idea of private. Private property and private wealth. But what's fascinating, and you've heard the talks today, I would argue that we're operating into a whole new business model of linked value and system value. And we're able to operate in this new architecture of value, which allows us to create a whole new notion of synthetic commons and a new class of business, which will be system venturing, operating at the system level and distributing value at a system level. Now, why that's important is that I think it challenges the paradigm of how we think about objects, how we think about nouns. I'll give you a very basic example. Good piece of ethnographic study was done actually quite early on in the 1990s. And if you took a child born in the West, someone like me, I was born in the UK, and you showed me a painting, I would describe the painting by going, I see a vase. And then if somebody asked me again, I would describe the context. If you took the same painting and showed it to a child born in the East, they would describe the context. And if you asked again, they would describe the vase. Now, what that means is we have privileged a way of seeing the world, which allows us to always see magic bullets, single-point solutions, single-point realities to complex problems. Because it was possible. In the 15th, 16th century, the world was infinite and our externalities were never actually going to come back to us. Now our externalities are short-circuiting and driving negative feedback cycles in ways we can't imagine. But how do you drive change in that world when actually you have so, so much significant complexity is, I think, a fundamental challenge that we're facing. So again, I want to throw us back to a kind of th conversation which says this conversation of technology that we're having are we starting to reflect a bigger structural paradigm issues that are starting to hit us in a pretty catastrophic way? Right? Trump, Brexit, the rise of the far right all across Europe aren't just casual phenomena. They're part of a systematic questioning of how we exist. And I don't think we can ignore it. At the same time, I would say one of the most undervalued conversations is reimagining governance. So often I hear, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to offend, off, uh, offend the blockchain people here. Everyone talks about trust, you know, trustless systems. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's nice. But actually the reality is all we're talking about in many blockchain systems is increasing transactional systems and not, allow, not needing trust in those systems. So it's kind of displacement. But actually, I would argue one of the big challenges we face is reimagining governance for the 21st century. And reimagining governance for the 21st century is a fundamental issue that I don't think we're putting our eye on. So if you're a CEO of a, any major company in the world and you have non-executive members, if you did a social network analysis of those non-execs, you would realize that most of those non-execs are only two or three degrees removed, two degrees maybe, maximum, of the CEOs or the executive team. 
I think what we're saying is we're seeing a fundamental corruption of governance in the 21st century. In a world of interdependency, we have not reimagined governance for the 21st century. Now, in that world, there are several different arguments on the table. And what I want to put forward to you is that in this conversation of governance, there are three models in play. And in a way, let's talk about the current model for a moment. I was driving very fast. My uncle had passed away, and I was speeding to get to the hospital. I got stopped by the police and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to the, got to get to the hospital. I said, okay, uh, I have to issue a ticket, but go to the judge and say what happened. I said, okay. Three months later, went to the judge. This is what I was doing. The judge said, that's fine. It's a reasonable, reasonable uh, uh, thing that you're doing. You were still driving safely. You weren't anyway. And sort of cancelled the payment, cancelled the fine, and the three points. This is where governance is loosely coupled. Now imagine the tech utopia conversation that we're having, right? Which is where governance is tightly coupled. My car does not go more than 30 miles an hour because tech has solved that problem, right? There's a little code, right? What's the, what's the issue? Or if I speed up, tech informs the police, automatically finds me, it's all done. Second part of the problem. This is about tightly coupling compliance and governance together, right? Regulation and compliance together. I want to put forward to you, this is a misunderstanding of actually governance. The best solution would be, how do you use technology to make us more noble? The role of technology is not to actually tightly couple us and actually destroy our ability to be human beings, but actually is to make us no, more noble as human beings. What do I mean by that? And why do I bring it up? The risk is we underestimate what it means to be human. Every one of you here and every one of your friends is more extraordinary than any general artificial intelligence that has ever been created. Fact. more powerful, all your friends, pretty much everyone you meet is more extraordinary than any general artificial intelligence that has ever been created. Yet, actually what happens, are we creating societies and systems which unlock the full capacity of what it means to be human, or are we, have we built societies which actually focus on us being bad robots? Bad ideas of compliance. So why I bring this up is how we fundamentally think about this future of the role of technology, whether it is an actor of compliance or whether it's a means to actually ennoble us. And ennoblement governance is there, right? So you have all probably seen, if you want to make people slow down, there's lots of beautiful ways of doing it. You put flowers on a road, you put beautiful trees on the road, people slow down, people behave differently because you induce empathy, you do induce awareness of other children. Children playing on the road naturally slow people down. There's lots of really interesting tools which invite us to be more noble. Even technology, we know, for example, in terms of judges, actually if you show judges where their decision sits in relative to all their other peers' decisions, they make better decisions. They make more self-conscious decisions. So what I want to say is, how do we start to think about technology not as a means of control, but as a means of ennoblement? 
And I think unless we can start to imagine these technologies as means of ennoblement, there is a genuine risk we undermine and we actually drive a means of control, which is actually a pretty synthetic idea of what we've been doing over the last 30 years around management. Management is a means to dealing with control. You know, your boss will tell you what to do. You have a HR contract will tell you how many hours you want to you'd work. It is an idea of control. Now, you go back to the last diagram I showed you, which was this complexity diagram. What you realize in that world, you cannot do things top down. What you need is to release distributed capacity to curate, to create and innovate. We need to release the distributed capacity for individuals to contribute in ways that we haven't imagined before. So if we want to imagine governance for the 21st century using technology, we have to find ways for decentralizing creativity and contribution, which I think are going to be fundamental. Now, the second part of this conversation I want to add is that if we go through this with this theory, is actually most of the technologies that we are talking about, Uber, so let's use Uber as an example, Uber is, for example, actually didn't destroy the taxi driver just yet. What did it really destroy? The taxi office. It destroyed the administrative function of cities or administrative function. It undermined that. Now, in that world, how do we start to see the future becomes fascinating. So you can either see the world where actually that destruction or reorganization of bureaucracy is going to be, I think, paramount and fundamental in how we change the future. So how many of you know an organization called Bertzerger? Okay. Two, good. So this is an amazing organization in Holland. And why it's amazing is they provide now 90% of the care for, uh, for uh, neighborhood-level care. They have 10,000 nurses, and they have 50 people in HQ. What, you've, what they've seen is the nurses are actually much better trained, much better paid. They're a platform-based organization. But what they've destroyed is this middle economy, this destruction of the middle. They've destroyed the role of administration. And there's a 50-person economy, 50 people actually in HQ. Now, in that worldview, what we're seeing is the cities that we build around us are still predicated on building cities which are entirely about managerialism. The glass towers that you build actually, maybe we're entering an age of the post-managerial city. The city, which isn't about large glass towers and large administrative functions, what we're about to see is the destruction of the managerial class. Now go back to my first point about Trump and Brexit. What we've also seen is middle-class wages largely stagnate over the last 10 years. That stagnation of middle-class wages is almost coincidental with actually some of the challenges that we're starting to face. So we're seeing a paradigm shift in bureaucracy and administration. And I think that paradigm shift is not just a problem of how we imagine democracy, uh, governance, it's also a paradigm shift of actually value and how value is created. And in that world, I think we have to start to imagine some of the bureaucratic functions in really radical ways. So why I say all this is if you want to look at the history of the state, and the modern state, actually you go back to people like the Kaiser who imagined the modern state in its current bureaucratic function. And that has been the model of how our states have operated pretty much for the last 200 years. 
And what we're seeing is a radical reimagination of governance. And that, I think, is going to be one of the biggest transformations of our society that we've ever seen. So underneath all these conversations is something more profound. And how we challenge it, how do we preserve this notion of loosely coupled? How do we preserve this question of control to ennoblement? How do we open a conversation about self-governing systems, which is not about government, but governance? How do we drive, actually, the capacity for massive collaborative creativity to solve complex problems? How do we create the conditions for legitimacy? What we often don't talk about is almost right now, we're seeing a massive global decline of trust in pretty much every institution. And trust me, blockchain does not solve that problem. That is about the fundamental trust in our institutions, democracy, at a structural level. Now, we have to reimagine some of these things in hard ways. And often we end up talking about smart contracts. Everyone here is talking about some form of smart contract. But also what we're not talking about sufficiently is the role of smart policy or smart regulation. Smart regulation is going to be profound in many challenges that it brings about. Profound in a sense that it will challenge how do you drive legitimacy into that conversation? How do you drive legibility? How will citizens be able to recognize it? Because a smart piece of regulation is going to be parametric. It's going to be conditional. It's going to be triggerable. It's going to be hyper-contextual. How will we build legitimate regulations in the 21st century in an age of declining trust and a complexity of legibility and legitimacy. And I think one of the biggest problems we face is that, that we no longer have the societal capacity to be able to drive these innovations. You want to talk about this stuff, much of this stuff is right now happening in places like Singapore and China, and actually in many democratic civilizations, we're struggling to be able to do societal scale uh, experiments. And in that future, How do we think about governance in all its various forms? Whether it's human-to-human governance, which can be about ennobling, right? In a human-to-human relationship, you can invite people to be more noble. And remember, how many of you used actually, you've all done business, right? I want a hands up of how many people here have resorted to their contract, right? To their legal contract to complete their piece of work. Hands up. Right, come on, somebody must have. That's my point. Most good people, most of the work that we do, 99% of it never resorts to contract. Because by the time it resorts to contract, the problem has already materialized. You are already in a dispute. So actually, most of our work And this is where I think we need to be really conscious about when we talk about all this contractual infrastructure actually still relies on many other influences and many other rules and mechanisms. So what does governance look like in the human-to-human economy I think is fundamentally different to a a human-rule-based rule-based economy, to effectively a machine-rule-based economy, to effectively a machine-learning-to-human-rule-based economy, to actually a machine-to-machine economy. I suppose my plea here is you are all some of the brightest minds 
in some of these issues. And I think one of the biggest challenges we face is we are not investing in reimagining governance for the 21st century. And if you look back at history, if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, as much as the steam engine was being reinvented, there was also the Encyclopedia Britannica. There was also the British Standards Institute. There were also new institutions being created for that age. And we are at an age where actually most of our conversation is about getting rid of govern, uh, rules. So often we stand up there, and you've probably been part of it, let's burn the red tape. Let's reduce the red tape. And actually what we need is new red tape. Reimagine red tape, which isn't about control, but perhaps is about outcomes, perhaps it's about completely different behaviors. And also, this is about challenging more fundamental things. So when you start to look at any of these things, you start to realize, do we even live in words, words like markets? Is Facebook genuinely a market? Or is it an actual natural monopoly? It only functions by being a natural monopoly. Is our language even appropriate for our conceptual frameworks, even appropriate for the world we're living in? So Twitter becomes more and more valuable the more of a network economy it becomes, as does Facebook. So should we have to reframe the language that we use? And if you go back to the 1930s and 40s, what you very clearly see is words like, so the trust laws. How do we imagine these new public utilities with new models of privately financed? How do we imagine governance? This conversation maybe is not possible in the US, but it is possible in Europe. And we need to be bold enough to be starting to reframe this. I'm not saying break up Facebook. I'm saying let's understand it for what it is. It operates better and better by being a natural monopoly. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things. I'm saying let's imagine what is the appropriate governance for these tools. And not as a means of control, but actually as a means of driving some of these things forward. So when you start to look at this, you start to say, we need to reimagine these frames. Now, at the same time, what I want to put forward to you, that there are extraordinary things possible. Property rights, which have been the foundation of democracy, actually can be reimagined. Property rights, which are bundled rights, rights between title, rights to use, rights to develop, rights to resource mine, actually can be fundamentally unbundled and taxed differentially. So, this is a piece of work that we're doing, but actually I can talk about it later. If you unbundle property rights, the future development rights of a building or a title can be sold and taxed differentially. You can have linked value, linking your property rights to actually social infrastructure. The foundations of how we build and understand private value is being reimagined by technologies in order to be able to do this. And what I would encourage us to do is start to really deeply think about the implications of this restructuring of rights. And it opens up whole new architectures of value creation. So programmable property rights in terms of what, what it does, in terms of tokenizable assets in different ways, differential taxation models, all sorts of things become possible in a way that we've never not been imagined before. That world is also here, and it can actually build a better, more just world. 
but it also allows, forces us to acknowledge where is value created? Is it my house that's gone up in value or is it actually public goods? And in a transact, where the transaction costs are near zero, we can start to reimagine actually that value creation and redistribute it in the ways that we haven't done previously. And the reason why I have this conversation here is that there are very few parts of the world which have the democratic infrastructure to have this conversation. Very few parts of the world. And the question you want to ask yourself is, in this massive concentration of wealth and power, actually do we end up leaving a better world that addresses any of the complex issues that we're talking about? I think technology and the conversations that we're having are fundamental. But actually, simultaneously, how we design them, for whom we design them, where the benefit really comes, is going to be deeply profound. There was a really interesting piece of article which basically said in moments like this, there's only really four ways out. A revolution, a war, a famine, or some other form of disaster. And in a way, history has shown us we're sitting at the precipice of these things. And we have done bold things in history. We've done bold, extraordinary things. Bold reimagination of rights. Bold reimaginations of even human rights. Often, our human rights were built for a labor economy. They weren't built for an emotional, high-performance, cognitive economy. What will they mean if you genuinely want to unlock the full capacity of every citizen that you know? How will you build that society? How will you build, rebuild that economy? How will you talk about universal basic income as a means to unlock everyone's capacity? I think those sort of things are going to be fundamental. And I want to end here. I don't think we're actually arguing or reimagining the world. All we're really talking about is dividing the dirt and division of what is currently available. Actually, I'd like us to imagine the possible. I think there's a moment to deeply reimagine what the future can bring to us. And I think technology is a powerful device. But actually, my worry is we're just using technology to define the dirt a little bit more precisely rather than deeply reimagine what the future can be. And actually, we can't do it that way. That way only leads us to disaster. So on that somber note, I'll leave you. But I thank you for your time and effort. Thank you. That was Indy Johar's keynote from the next conference 2018. If you liked this episode as much as we did, go to iTunes, rate us with five stars and leave a comment. We are happy to hear from you. The Next Conference podcast is presented by Sonarbird, the easiest way to create a podcast or a flash briefing online. If you want to start a podcast like that for your conference or for anything you would like to say, go to sonarbird.io and start your own podcast now. That's sonarbird.io.